When we talk about committing suicide, there is a crisis in this country. And as, as I was saying earlier, you know, a lot of Americans, very patriotic, join the military to protect our country. They do a great job. They come back and we don't protect them at all. And that is untenable on every level. And so it is that retired United States Navy SEAL Senior Chief Ty Smith joins us. Welcome to WGN, Ty. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I'm very interested in what you have to say because you've lived it firsthand and you've come out of it with a heck of a career. You're the founder and CEO of ComSafe AI. Uh, you got your MBA from University of Southern California and didn't even have to pretend you were on the crewing team. So uh, this is a <laughs> <laughs> this is a pretty pretty darn uh, accomplished. And uh, uh, you know I say you were one of the lucky ones, but I'm sure it's a lot more than luck. So let me go back to the beginning. How old were you when you joined the military? Uh, I think I was 17 or maybe just turning 18 when I joined the Navy. And where were you? Uh, I grew up in East St. Louis, Illinois, right there Mm -hmm. on the Illinois-Missouri border. A lot of people don't don't know that uh, the east side of St. Louis is actually on the Illinois side, and I'm very proud to be from Illinois, so I always make sure that I set that straight. But, yeah, that's where I grew up. Yeah, it's absolutely on the uh, on the Illinois side. It's also the most soulful place around, home of KATZ. Years ago, Dr. Druckenstein, and uh, I love you, St. Louis. Right. Yeah, it was a, and a lot of great soul records there that people didn't realize later the acts wound up in Chicago, but they started in East St. Louis. So uh, quite a quite a history there. So okay, you're you're a high school kid. You're in East St. Louis, and uh, you decide I'm I'm joining the Navy. I'm going to see the world. And I guess my first question was, what was the first shock you got? Because it's never like you expect. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, my desire to join the Navy actually went back a little further than graduating high school. When I was a 12-year-old kid, I happened to watch an old movie with Charlie Sheen called Navy Seal. And I was sitting at home watching this movie with my mom, and I was just completely intrigued and in love with what I saw these men doing. I mean, they were jumping out of airplanes, you know, diving under dark water, you know, coming out of the water in foreign places and getting in gunfights with, with bad people. And I was just completely enraptured with what I saw. And I looked up at my mom that night and I said, Mama, that's what I want to be when I grow up. And my mom could have said anything in the world, but she looked at me with a straight face and said, that'd be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. But if you want to do it, you can. You can absolutely do that. And I was a 12-year-old kid when, when she said that to me, and it was something that just stuck with me. And so when I was graduating uh, high school, I wasn't even close to being ready for college. You know, growing up in East St. Louis, education isn't really, yeah. you know, an everyday topic. It's not something that, that's talked about as much as it should be. It's not something that's pushed on our youth as much as it should be. So I wasn't ready for college, but I knew that I was ready to get out of East St. Louis and, and that there wasn't much there for me. So fortunately, I had a calling that stayed with me from the time I was a little boy. And when it was time for me to graduate, I, I got out of there as quickly as I could. And my first assignment was actually uh, as a military police officer in Sardinia, Italy. And I just, I had the time of my life. But when 9-11 happened, you know, it was time for me to, to kind of refocus on my dream. And fortunately, I'd already submitted a package 
to go to budge training here in Coronado, and that package was immediately approved about a week after the planes hit the towers, and, and I found myself in in Coronado, California, uh, you know, in SEAL training in February 2002, just about four and a half, five months after uh, the terror attack on 9-11. And I had a great career after that, but, but to answer your question of, you know, what was the first thing that, that really shocked me? Uh, believe it or not, the first thing that really shocked me, and it was, this is really important because it kind of changed my entire outlook on people was, you know, like I said, my first permanent duty station was in Sardinia, Italy. And, and there I was, an 18-year-old kid taking orders to Italy and talking to a lot of my friends at the time because I was really excited that I got orders to Italy. And almost every one of the knuckleheads that I talked to you know, they told me, man, oh, my God, like, you're going to hate it. Yes. Italian people are super racist. They're not going to like you. People yes. are going to treat you like crap. You're going to want to come back to the U.S. immediately. Yes. And so I went to Sardinia, Italy, you know, with, with that attitude and was completely shocked literally from day one. From day one, I got there, and people just treated me like I was this amazing human being that they couldn't wait to meet. And they've been waiting for their entire lives. And it totally changed my outlook on not just Italian people, but people in general. And, and it caused me to realize that, hey, people are going to say a lot of stuff. People are going to talk a lot of trash all the time. But ultimately, it's up to you to take in as much data as you can and make your own decisions based off what you think and what you feel, not based off what other people are saying. That is a terrific life lesson. If that was the only thing you learned in the military, and you learned much more, but that alone would have put you uh, put you in good stead. I'm talking, by the way, with Ty Smith, and he is a retired United States Navy SEAL, senior chief. We're talking 20 years of military, six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, as well as coming out of that, getting an MBA at USC, and having ComSafe AI, which we'll talk about as well. So Ty has done very very well, but on Veterans Day, also wanted to highlight a crisis that we have among many returning veterans that, in some ways, is being swept under the rug, and we need to get that out in the open. We will. We'll talk more about Ty and that as well. And if you want to join us, eight 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 seven six five five nine three eighty eight eighty eight R O L L Y E on WGN Radio. We're talking with Ty Smith. He's a retired United States Navy SEAL senior chief, 20 years of service. He's seen it. He's done it. And now, of course, sadly, back here, we're all seeing it, the results for some veterans that is just untenable. But I'm uh, I'm so enthralled with uh, with Ty's background. I want to spend a little more time on that. So here you go to Coronado, not a bad place to be, by the way. You do your Navy SEALs training, mm-hmm. and uh, where do you wind up next? Yeah, so after training, I took orders to SEAL Team 8 in Norfolk, Virginia. Okay. That's not bad. At what point did you find yourself in the Mideast? Probably about a year to a year and a half after that, I was on my very first deployment as a SEAL operator, and that was to Afghanistan, and that was... In total, that was a six-month tour, but at that time, we were doing uh, sort of like a, a swap in the middle of the deployment where our platoon was there for several months, and then halfway 
through, we, we switched out with our sister platoon that was at a different location in Europe. You know, because even back then, our leadership was, was concerned that, you know, long-term pressure on the force could be pretty unforgiving if we're leaving operators in places like Afghanistan for too long, especially when you consider the operational tempo of special operations commandos compared to the men and women in, in, you know, for lack of better words, what we would consider to be the regular military. So I spent about three, three and a half months uh, in Afghanistan as a brand new SEAL operator, my, my very first deployment. And I think that was, I think that was in 2004. Mm-hmm. And again, I'll ask you, because Afghanistan, uh, someone from East St. Louis, there's no way to describe what you encountered. So if I ask you uh, what is the uh, most memorable or biggest shock you had, I bet you there's a lot of them. But uh, the takeaway looking back on it, what was it where you said, I can't believe this? You know, believe it or not, I was shocked by how beautiful Afghanistan is as a country. Okay. That was something that, that I, I never let go of, even the couple of times that I deployed to Afghanistan after that. I was always, you know, it, it's a breathtakingly beautiful place, especially up in the mountains, yeah. uh, where it's also extremely deadly. You know, yes. but, it's, but it's actually a really, really beautiful place. And even coming out of the mountains into the valleys, and especially... You know, during the the times of the spring and summer, and everything's green. It's gosh, it's almost a place you'd want to visit if it wasn't one of the deadliest places on earth. I think that was also something that that I learned was a dramatic difference between being deployed to Afghanistan and being deployed to Iraq, and and it never ceased to amaze me or surprise me, which is just the mindset of the fighters in Afghanistan. I felt like in Iraq. The fighters were cowards for the most part. They just wanted to blow you up. They wanted to plant a roadside bomb in a sneaky place where you never saw it coming. And that's how they wanted to do their fighting. Whereas in Afghanistan, the Taliban, they are not cowards. They want to fight the infidels. They want to fight the Americans. Uh, it's almost It almost becomes like a rite of passage to them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I would say that repeatedly, you know, I would I would be surprised at just how committed the Taliban was to their cause. And, and it didn't really dawn on me why until I got to be much older and much more mature and, and I could see the battlefield from a much more macro level, you know, and, and, I, and I was talking the difference between, you know, trying to understand what's happening in this particular operation, what's happening in this particular fight right now versus, you know, what's happening regarding the global war on terror, you know, but it it took me a very long time, you know, some years in the game and growing up a little bit and maturing and and understanding that there was much more going on uh, than what I could actually see. But that was, that was always something that, that was surprising to me is just how totally committed to their cause the Taliban was, and they were willing to die for it over and over again. Yeah, in a heartbeat, you betcha. And that makes it very In t- a heartbeat, and it yeah. never changed. It never changed. Not, 
from my very first deployment there in 2004 to the last time I deployed there in 2014. That never changed. And that makes it even more stressful because that means the entire deployment, you can't let your guard down for a minute. And so, Absolutely I, not. And I think where I really experienced that was my last deployment uh, to Afghanistan in 2014. And as the senior enlisted leadership of that particular SEAL platoon and, and being there at that time at, you know, what we believe was the very end of the war, uh, the, the timing was perfect. You know, if you're into that kind of thing, it was the entire fighting season. So we were there for all of the summer months. And because, you know, we were one of only two special operations units that were actually working in that area at the time and in an extremely uh, denied territory, it was completely enemy held. Mm. You know, that was... It was definitely the most violent deployment of my career, but it was, uh, again, it was that lesson just driven home that, you know, if you leave outside of the wire, you're going to be in for a fight. You're going to be in a fight for your life because the Taliban isn't running. They're actually going to run toward the Americans, and they want to fight, and they mean it with their entire hearts, and and they believe that they are right, just like I believed I was right every time I was protecting my nation. They believe the exact same thing. And it took me a lot of years to actually critically consider that and realize that. And when I went back there in 2014 as the senior enlisted, you know, responsible for the lives of the 22 operators that were assigned to me, you know, things were a lot different, but some things never changed. And, And that was one of them. They wanted to fight. It's unrelenting all the way around, and as I listen to Ty Smith, I can, I can hear just in his recitation of this how somebody could come away from this with PTSD. It's not hard to imagine, so we'll get back stateside as well, though I may have a few more questions for Ty. He's an interesting guy. If you want to talk to him yourself, all you have to do is dial 888-876-5593-8888 Raleigh on WGN Radio. We're talking with Ty Smith. Smith, retired United States Navy SEAL senior chief with 20 years of service, six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it is interesting, Ty, when you hit that big picture moment and you you realize, oh, my God, they're as committed to their ideology as we ever will be. And when that happened, what did you do with that knowledge? Well, I think that what I took from that that was extremely important was I think a different level of understanding as to how extremely important it was that my teammates and I were always a step or three ahead and that every second that we spent training and preparing to do our jobs overseas was taken more than seriously, beyond seriously. You know, this was an enemy that may not have had as much training uh, as we had, but make no mistake, uh, the enemy had as much, if not more, experience in combat than we did because the Afghanis have been fighting forever. They were fighting the Russians before they were fighting us, and those mountains are their home. But beyond having as much or, or more experience than we had, 
they were just as committed to the cause as we were, mm-hmm. you know, so there was, there was never going to be a, you know, first to contact, the fight starts and the enemy runs away. <laughs> no, it's first to contact, the fight starts and the enemy is there and they're going to be there until the very last drop. Yes. And so you had to be on your A game every second of the fight because the second you decided you weren't going to respect the Taliban, they would kill you. Yeah. You yeah. know, and, and, and that was something that, you know, of course, like I, I, I always had that in mind, but it was one of those things to where you kind of had to be there and experience it yeah. in order to fully understand uh, the, the weight of that situation and just how dire some of those situations could become and rapidly. Yeah. And as I say, that's uh, that that's set up to fully understand why many people come back with PTSD. Now, after six tours, were you out because six tours was enough of that and 20 years uh, as a Navy SEAL and it's time to retire, or were you injured? I think it was both for me because at the end of my career, you know, I was just diagnosed with with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury. Mm. Um, Thankfully, to be honest with you, I'm really grateful that I ended up getting that diagnosis. And I I ended up getting that diagnosis because uh, I was having a really hard time. I was was in the middle of grad school, and this was in 2015, Mm -hmm. 2015, 2016. Um, I was in the middle of grad school, up at USC, I was noticing that I was starting to have a difficult time reading. For mm. some reason, my brain was naturally was beginning to naturally tell my eyes to go to the bottom right of a page and try to read backwards. Mm. And you know, normally I'm a really fast reader, so when I when that started happening, it was incredibly noticeable. And as you can imagine, it was also a pain in the backside because I was in grad school right. and I had to read a whole lot. Uh, but also. You know, I probably hadn't slept in years, probably at least two or three years. I mean, not really. I hadn't really slept. Uh, so I was, you know, chronically sleep deprived. Um, mm. I was going through a very difficult time having had just buried my, my little sister out of nowhere. She, mm. she died mm. uh, in her sleep peacefully one night. Mm. And, and I just, I had a lot going on. I was, I was, going into my transition and not really, you know, have an idea, but not really having an idea of the full weight of that kind of change from going from being in the military my entire adult life to all of a sudden I'm planning to not be in the military anymore. And by the way, I'm I'm not, I don't have a job lined up. Uh, Not really. You know, I I think I'm going to get hired by the FBI, but not, Really, now all of a sudden, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to build my own company. So I, I really stacked my plate with a bunch of, uh, of stress, uh, not really understanding that I was already in trouble. I was already beginning to drown in stress. But I was out to dinner one night with, with my wife and my son here in San Diego, and I don't know why, I did this to this day. I can't really explain to you why I did this, but um, I, I stood up from the dinner table and I leaned over and I kissed my wife and I looked at my son and I said to them both, I love you and I'll see you at home. And 
my wife looked at me, you know, with this bewildered look on her face, and she said, you know, where are you going? Because we're at a restaurant, you know, out in San Diego. We're not at home. Uh, We're out in public. And I looked at her and I said, uh, I need to go to the hospital right now, like right now. And that's what I did. Um, And and I knew, I I don't know why I I did that, uh, but I did. And I'm really grateful because I, I know that, I can't explain to you how or why, but I knew that when I got home that night, I was going to shoot myself. Mm. Oh, I, just, I knew it. And, uh, and I was really scared, and I was really worried, and I kept thinking about my wife and children, and I kept thinking about you know my poor mother who had just out of nowhere buried her second born. I was the right. first born. Right. Um, and I kept thinking about all of my loved ones that I, I leave behind, and... You know, prior to that point, that hadn't really occurred to me. But I, I guess it was just, you know, God told me, hey, get up and go to the hospital and ask for help right now. Yeah. And I'm glad I did. And, and that's what led to me over the next week, you know, going through a bunch of testing. Uh, and the result of that was the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress. And even beyond that, uh, I learned that I had pretty uh, moderate traumatic brain injuries. That is an amazing story because most people who get to that point don't have the insight to be able to say, I got to handle this immediately or else. And sadly, we look at the statistics and see the result. And I I would agree, it's almost like on some level, it was divine intervention. But just like when you were in Afghanistan and able to see the big picture, see outside of yourself, it seemed like at that dinner table, you got that same glimpse, you saw that big picture and said, now or never. Now, the diagnosis is a relief in and of itself, because it puts a name to some feelings that are very hard to handle and to comprehend, how long was it before you felt emotionally you were on an even keel? Well, I don't know if I'll ever feel like I'm on an even keel ever again. Here's the thing about combat. It changes people permanently. Sure. You know, I, I the way I describe it sometimes is that, you know, in a way... You know, I feel like every time I deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, I left a part of me mm-hmm. there. Absolutely. There's a part of me that I'll never get back. There's, there's, there's some of me that's still in the mountains of Afghanistan and still in the, yeah. the, the cities of Iraq. And in a way, you know, that's harmed me sure. because I'm, 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 I'm not whole. I'm not the person that, that I once was. And so... All I can do is try to focus on doing everything in my power to try to get back to being that person uh, uh-huh. again. But understanding that I'll never, I'll never fully recover from that because the things that you see, the things you do, things you experience when you're in combat, they are not normal things. You know, right. we weren't designed to see those things and right. experience those things and, and to do those things to one another. So I don't think I'll ever reach a point where, you know, I'm back on even ground. I think what's most important is that I, I am mindful of that mm-hmm. and that I give myself a break and understand that, hey, you're never going to be a normal human being again. And unfortunately, you're going to have to carry the burden of trying with everything you have every day for the rest of your life to just always be mindful of that 
and, and try to get back to being normal as much as you can every day. But I, I don't think that I'll ever be, you know, an even keeled person again. Now, the person that I am today is, is much different than the person I was that night that I got in that cab and left my family in that restaurant mm-hmm. in San Diego and I went and checked myself into the emergency room. I think that after that happened, you know, it, it took probably a good, another good two years before I could look back on that person and go, wow, like I was, I'm always going to be someone else, but man, I was really someone else then. Mm-hmm. I mean, that I can recall the things that were, just swirling through my head on a daily and a nightly basis. And something, like I said, don't get me wrong. Sometimes I have good days and I have bad days. Sure. Sometimes those thoughts still come back, but at least I can be mindful of it now. But when I think back to how I was feeling that night, you know, it wasn't for a few years later that I could look back and go, man, like you don't even understand how much trouble you were really in. Yeah. And when I think of that, to be honest with you, it, it scares the daylights out of me. It, it, it scares me not for me, but it scares me when I consider my brothers and sisters that are out there in the world somewhere right now feeling that feeling that I felt and, and having genuine concern in my heart that, you know, maybe, hey, is God speaking to them right now? Is he going to tell them to get up and go? To the hospital right now or are they just alone in that feeling right. and in the process of losing that fight you know so it's uh it, it takes time it, it takes a very long time and you have to constantly be on top of that mindfulness and trying to to find ways to get back to being normal like for me i rely on things like brazilian jiu-jitsu and hot yoga and surfing and working out as though there's no tomorrow to try to burn negative stress and, and research and, and writing and, and trying to talk to other veterans and share my experience and, you know, things like that. But it's, those are all things that I employ on a daily basis, you know, in, in my fight to live and, and be around for my loved ones. It's interesting because I think that anyone who experienced what you did, who didn't come away with post-traumatic stress, would be almost soulless. It's, it's sort of an effect that is almost guaranteed for most humans. As you say, most of us aren't made up constitutionally to accept the things that we witness and the things in which we partake. Now, with that in right. mind... Is the mili- And obviously the military is aware of the statistics, we know that, but are they doing anything early on in the training game to explain to people what this is, and you might feel it, and when you do, you need to get help? Well, I will tell you, when I went through SEAL training back in 2002, early 2002 is when I checked into training, no one was talking to us about post-traumatic stress. No one was talking to us about Mm. the physical and psychological changes that you will experience Mm. after experiencing combat. But at the same time, you know, I have to, I have to defend my community when I say that they simply didn't know any better. Right. You know, because the last time that, that 
you know, those men and women had seen combat was the Gulf War, and that was more of a skirmish than anything. You know, that was over so, so quickly. Uh, no one had an idea that we were going to go into war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that we would be at, at war in these places for decades. Right. So, you know, they, they, my instructors, only a couple of them, uh, had actual combat experience. Like some of those guys saw combat for the very first time around the same time that I did after I finished training and reported to a team, and they were reporting back to a team uh, mm-hmm. themselves. So when I went through training, you know, people didn't talk to us about that. But that has changed over the years, not at a level that I'm satisfied with, which is why, you know, I will readily swallow my pride and be vulnerable and talk to to people, especially other veterans, about my experiences because I don't want them to feel like they're going it alone. But those things are changing. I know that when I went back to BUDS as an instructor in 2007, I made it a point to talk to students about my experiences in combat and how those experiences had changed me even at that point. And I was still relatively junior. I was still relatively young in my career. But I thought it was really, really important to explain to them uh, because by that time I had lost some friends. I had buried yeah. a good amount of, of teammates. And I thought it was really important that, that I share with them that, hey, it's not, you know, this, is, this career is a dream. It's amazing. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't trade any of my experiences for anything. Every one of them has made me into the person that I am today, and I'm grateful. But it's not all what you see in the movies. You know, it's not all fun and games and cool and you're living like a rock star. No, war changes people. Bullets are real, and they will kill you. And if you survive this training and you enter the SEAL teams, more than likely you will see some of your friends be killed, and you will be forever changed. You will be yeah. a different person from that moment for the rest of your life. You betcha. We're talking to Ty Smith, retired United States Navy SEAL, senior chief, 20 years of service, six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, an MBA from USC and a business. I've got a link at Raleigh.net, by the way, to that business. It's it's fascinating. We probably won't get much time tonight to go into that because this is such, a, such an important subject. And uh, so far, I would say if you are listening and you have experienced anything like Ty is describing whatsoever, uh, the key takeaway for me is you are not alone. If you want to join us, 888-876-5593 is 8888-RALEIGH on WGN Radio. WGN Radio. I'm Raleigh James. I'm going to forego the bumper because I want to spend the next four minutes. Hard to believe that the hour is just about up with Ty Smith, retired United States Navy SEAL, senior chief, 20 years of service, six tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when you look at the stats, 20 veterans per day in the last report I read are taking their lives. I was just talking with uh, engineer Adam and hope I'm not speaking out of school, but he uh, lost his brother to uh, to the results of post-traumatic stress. And I think if you look around, probably there's someone in your life you know, if not uh, in your immediate family, certainly close enough to know by first name. And this is just untenable. So I'm glad, Ty, that there are people who are starting to deal with this in the military. But for individuals who are released uh, 
uh, who leave the service, now they've come home, and especially if they're doing that right now, the COVID-19 situation where jobs are not plentiful and jobs are tough to begin with, I would assume that the pressure is enormous on, on these individuals. Absolutely. You know, these men and women are already under a tremendous amount of mental and psychological stress. And when you add on top of that the stress that this pandemic has created over the last nine months, the isolation that is forced upon all of us, you know, if you remember what I said back a few minutes ago, it's that, hey, I... I actually got up and and went to the hospital and said, hey, I need help. I need help right now. But unfortunately, over the last nine months, uh, men and women haven't necessarily had the ability to do that because even the hospitals have have told people that, hey, if this isn't uh, an emergent case, stay home. Don't come here because we're we're too busy dealing with COVID-19. Or if you take a look at the fact that there are veterans that absolutely rely on, you know, every Friday is when I get to go and meet up with my brothers and sisters that I served with, and, and, and we get to talk about this stuff that literally keeps us up at night. Right. Because we have nightmares about it, or just because I just can't sleep, because I can't stop seeing the faces sure. of, of my brothers and sisters that I lost overseas. But over the last nine months, even that has been taken away. And now you add on top of that the stress that all of us Americans are feeling as a result of this pandemic. And you take a look at the data that is publicly available over the last 16 record sales. I think there's been nearly 14 million new firearms that have been sold in the United States between January and present day. In June alone, we saw record-breaking 3.9 million new firearms that were sold in this country. You take a look at the fact that domestic violence is on the rise, child abuse is on the rise, cyber stalking, cyber bullying, sexual harassment, uh, domestic terror. And make no mistake, these men and women that have served their country, and whether you're talking about military members, law enforcement, emergency medical services, you know, these are people that believe in human beings with their whole heart. These are servant leaders that for the rest of their lives, service to country is going to be a part of who they are. And all of this data, all of these things that we're experiencing as a result of this pandemic, it weighs on us. It weighs on each and every one of us every day. And so, yeah, I I think that over the last nine months, as a result of this pandemic, I, I think that the, the, the data right now is saying that veteran suicide has increased between 20 and 30 percent over the last nine months alone. I'm so sorry to hear that, and I'm really sorry the hour is up as well. I would hope that there are people listening who realize more than anything that they're not alone, and uh, and the bravest thing they can do is speak out right now. I would also think that you're absolutely right about all the pandemic uh, ramifications, and I would think that those of us who are lucky enough not to be in that situation should be more mindful to recognize it and try to help people where we see the signs rather than just kind of ignore it and say, oh, he or she will be okay. Uh, Ty, thank you for what you do, and thank you for spending an hour with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.